0: Hey everybody! You are listening to the Tough Like a Girl podcast. I'm Nathaniel,
1: and I'm Liz.
0: And this month we are we are going to get to the title that is in the description of the episode, which is White Bird by R.J. Palacio. Palacio.
1: Um, I don't I will look that up, but yeah. <laughs>
0: um, but we do want to address a few other things at the front end. With everything going on, it just felt like. Something that we should do.
1: Needed to be addressed.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, So we wanted to highlight a couple of graphic novels um, that dealt with um, topics around Black Lives Matter or um, really highlighted um, black voices. Um, And one of the ones that we've read and done already was um, Moon Girl and Devil, Devil Dinosaur. And, um, we looked specifically at the illustrator on that because, um, partially because when I went back and looked at it, I was like, we really liked the illustrations the best on that book anyways.
0: Yeah, that's
2: true.
1: (laughs) We had some nitpicks about the, um, the plot, especially in terms of the writing, but we both seemed to really like the illustrations and the details put into them and, um, just the, like energy and cuteness, um, of both the main characters. (laughs) Um, so one of the things I think is really important, especially in the comics world is authentic representation. And we wanted to highlight Natasha Bustos, um, who is, um, the black artist behind, um, Moon Girl and Devil's Dinosaur. Um, she's we're gonna link an article so you can read a little bit about why she thought illustrating moon girl was really important um I think it's a really good article to read and kind of have sink in um yeah and, and um yeah and I just also wanted to highlight that book because it does a great job of illustrating um uh like, black girls in STEM and in how important that is. And we'd also like to highlight the organization um, Black Girls Code this month to donate to um, and really celebrate that. Um, That, to me, has been important this year because we also, this year, lost Katherine Johnson, who is a personal hero of mine. um, And... Was a we read a picture book biography of her, um, in to all my elementary school students, and she especially resonated with my fourth grade class.
0: And just in case people don't know who that is, if you haven't seen Hidden Figures, go and watch it, it's very good, and you'll have context for why that was a loss.
1: There was also a really good picture book biography of hers called Counting on Catherine, um, about her, not of by her um so I would recommend that as well um a couple other ones we wanted to highlight is um March book one um which is by John Lewis and about John Lewis um and actually the whole series I will confess I've only read the first one um it came to my attention um a couple years ago because um it was awarded a lot of prizes um And the whole series has been, and I don't know which particular books for some of them because, again, it's a trilogy, but it has been a National Book Award. It's won the ALA Prince Award, the Coretta Scott King um, Award, a YALSA Nonfiction Award, a Will Eisner Award. Um, and a Walter Dean Myers Award for Outstanding Children's Literature in the Young Adult category. Um, It's really powerful. Um, Again, John Lewis is another person to look into. Um, He's a congressman um, and just a living legend um, of the civil rights movement. And I've had the privilege of hearing him speak, and it's incredibly powerful having met him and hearing him speak and all that he's done, Um, so I would educate yourselves on that as well if you're interested in it. Um, It was something that my students read um, across the middle school because it was um, a Vermont Reads book last year, and they all really immensely enjoyed it and um, learned a lot from it, so it was a pretty powerful educational experience for my children, or for my, not my personal children, obviously, <laughs> but for my students, who I often call my children. Um, another one that I just read a couple of weeks ago and I'm absolutely raving about and in love with is, again, not focused on um, a girl, again, or a woman, but um, and we did want to highlight it uh, in in reference to the Black Lives Matter movement, and that is Jerry Craft's New Kid, um, which is probably the best graphic novel I've read in a couple of years. <laughs> and I will say it connects to the one we're going to cover today because they are the two graphic novels on our new Vermont Middle Grades Award list. Um, so... It's just phenomenal. It's funny. It's poignant. It's hard hitting. It deals with a lot of microaggressions and racism. Um, I think it's got a wide age appeal. Like it's the the list is built um, for grades four through eight, and I honestly think it would appeal to those all kids in all those grade levels, which doesn't often happen. Usually there's something that's at the younger end or the older end. I think this has a really broad appeal. Um, So we wanted to highlight those. And I think that girls, yep. I think those are the ones we wanted to talk about. And really just, you know, I think the importance of, for me, as someone of privilege who, you know, is white and cisgendered and of a middle class background um, is incredibly important. And I, you know, have been thinking a lot about my own complacency recently and how much that's entrenched in me and trying to find a way to do better. And for me, it's it comes most naturally through education and through my job and finding ways to do that better. And we urge you, audience members, if this is something that is dear to you and um, important to you, to find your way and to find a way to become a better advocate um, and to increase your awareness.
0: I mean, that's part of the, aside from just it being the remit of this show and this network you know, by and large, is is comic books focused. But, you know, you can find inroads to learning more about these things and about other perspectives through things you already love. You don't have to step a million miles out of your comfort zone and absorb, you know, a 10-part documentary series if that's not your bag. You can find good works within graphic novels, within the media that you already enjoy Mm -hmm. and that can be your inroad to these things so that's that was a big part of why even though um some of the books that that liz mentioned you know don't feature female protagonists which is our normal remit on this show it it is still us presenting you with graphic novel forms that you can you can look into and and find your way to to better understanding either the history or or the lives of people that you may not have as a full understanding of, which it, I again, I will also put my hand up to my own culpability on that, and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm working on it, and it's it's a process.
1: It's a process and it's a journey, but it, I feel it's strongly, at least for myself, it's one that needs to be done and needs to be addressed now, and you know. There's a lot of work to be done. So,
0: so with that said, um, we will get now into what we actually picked to do for this month, uh-huh. um, which is White Bird um, by R.J. Palacio. Apologies if that's not how it's pronounced. Um, who is best known at this point as the writer of the novel *Wonder*, which became a little bit of a phenomenon, and it got uh, oh, a, a movie adaptation.
1: Which I confess I have not seen. I think almost my all my students have seen it. Like a bunch of them went at, like as a school, and I was at the other campus that day, so I cannot speak to. I've read *Wonder* um, several years ago. I cannot speak to the movie though.
0: Yeah. So, and this uh, is not only written by her, but also illustrated by her. Her background before writing was in graphic design. Mm -hmm. And it is a Holocaust story. It has a framing device, which is actually how... (laughs) So, this is... I can't decide if this is cynical or really clever. I go back and forth. But it has on the front, it has a little... A wonder story. So she's very much banking on that brand because there's a framing device on this mm-hmm. that has, I get I believe it's the bully character
1: I from the I think so. I book. don't remember Julian much from the book. I was more hey. focused on Augie and his sister when I read Wonder. And again, it was probably like... Five years ago that I read it there's a lot of different viewpoints in it but I think there's a chapter that at least focuses on the modern day Julian
0: yeah, I just don't remember it well in any case he's a, he's a supporting character in that book so the framing device for this is him having a FaceTime call with his grandmother mm-hmm. and asking her about her experience during the Holocaust because she was a Jew living in Occupied France. Mm -hmm. So, and that story, her story, is the vast majority and the bulk of this. But there is that framing story, which connects it to Wonder, which, again, I can't decide whether that is really savvy or just really cynical or a beautiful mix of both.
1: Um, I will say, Wonder was a phenomenon, and she, the author, spent a lot of time playing off that um, the initial success so there was like a picture book version of Wonder and there was like a quotes book version of Wonder and stuff this having read Wonder and all those felt very much tied to that initial success this does tie but I feel I very much feel that it's it's own story Yeah, with a connection so and the fact that it's a graphic novel which is a different format for her which granted picture book was too i'm gonna say i appreciate it as separate from wonder even though it has that initial connection because i know that is her like that's that's her baby
0: that's that's her brand
1: (laughs) that is her brand
0: so the we talked about the framing device at least in terms of setting it up so the the story proper um is narrated by um sarah who Mm -hmm. is a young Um, jewish girl living in france and it starts out pre-occupation so we get context of what her life was with her family Mm -hmm. what things were like at school Mm -hmm. and then as um and you know we learn about some of her classmates Mm -hmm. um in particular the main highlighted ones are julian who. Uses crutches because he had polio when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And Vincent, who is—he's—I mean, he's a Nazi. He's yeah.
1: He, he before doesn't before he even officially becomes a Nazi. He is—he basically one in training. He is
0: a—he has adopted their mentalities and their ways of thinking. And, and a yeah.
1: jerk, and he is primed to become it. So, yeah,
0: and yeah, he and awful. and he also does become it. So like, let's let's. Let's just not mince words. Even though he doesn't start mm-hmm. a, as an official member, the, the guy's a Nazi. Let's yeah. let's let's call it what it is. So when the the Nazis come into where she is, she, um, you know, the the school. Uh, she went to a mixed school, you know, mixed faith and background school. Mm-hmm. And they try to get the the kids away when they find out soldiers are coming, and she actually um, stays behind and hides in the school, which turns out to be very fortunate because the other kids who fled were found and rounded up. Mm -hmm. And she's then found in the school by Julian, who brings her to his house, where she then spends over a year hiding in the hayloft of the barn, and Julian's... Parents are aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know she's there. They help her. You know, they bring her food and clothes and help her as, as best they can. Um, as it documents, you know her, um, you know her time with Julian and with that family, and her understanding of what was going on with the world outside, and the times that things get very rough when she is almost discovered, and the paranoia that uh, this family has about their neighbors, who they think are mm-hmm. Nazi collaborators. And it, um, and it follows straight through, um, through the liberation and, um, you know, it eventually gets there, but there is, it, it's pretty unflinching about what happens. It's, it's not graphic, it's not gory, but it's, it doesn't soften what happened? It says flat out, and, like, she, talking about her own mother, she says flat out, and she died at a concentration camp. Uh-huh. She's, there's there's not a lot of softening of this, and eventually finding out, towards the end, you know, what happened to Julian, and then, you know, reconnecting with her grandson and bringing the, the framing device back um, as she sort of connects things that she sees happening now and between struggles and opposition that remind her of what she had seen before. So uh, also sort of tying things um, back to present day so it doesn't feel as distant.
1: Mm-hmm. And this, I think, was written around the time of a lot of the marches and protests around um, the deportation camps and yeah. Um, And so, it's tied to that. And we also, um, given what is going on right now, um, it very much felt relevant in terms of talking about not being a bystander and not being complacent and using your voice and, you know, these themes of fascism and racism um, seem really prevalent right now. So even though we weren't really expecting that going in, I think thematically it felt incredibly relevant and powerful. Um, so, so yeah, that um, resonated with me a lot. Yeah,
0: I thought this was really well done, and it is one of those stories where the more I think about all the elements at play, the more I think this was really well planned out and really well executed. It did take me a little while to get used to the art style.
1: The art style, especially close up on portraits. Yeah. um, Like faces was not what you you knew the art style and you're better explaining better. It you can explain it, but it didn't I had to
0: I'm not sure that this is actually what it is, but what it looks like is a lot of whenever it is especially if it's a close up of a face. Mm -hmm. it looks photo-referenced. It looks like she had a real image of a person and then maybe not necessarily traced over it, but, like, was very much recreating it. And...
1: Which actually makes sense. I don't know if you read the author notes, but she was talking about her process and how she based, like, certain characters' looks on certain people in her life. Yeah. Um... So that would make sense that they were photo referenced or in a way like memory referenced.
0: Yeah, the unfortunately the offshoot, at least for me, was that when we got close-ups on faces, I actually tended to find it a little bit off putting. And I kind of preferred the art style when it was a little bit more distant and and it felt more like
1: I will say the images in the woods of, like, the bluebells are gorgeous.
0: I I don't want to knock the artist off. I mean, that's why I worded it as it took me a while to get used to it. Because I'm not sure it's bad, but I did find, um, especially the close-ups on faces, took me some time to get used to. And I never fell in love with, but I did get over it Mm -hmm. eventually.
1: yeah. So. I think the story is a stronger part and this also makes sense because it is her first graphic novel. Yeah. You know, like this is a new format and medium for the author. Yeah.
0: I don't I don't love the art, but the art does not diminish the writing which is very very good. Um and I think we'll probably get into some of what would be considered to be spoilers probably to talk some of the specifics of Mm-hmm. things in it so if you're um if that's something you're trying to be cautious of i think we both recommend this
1: mm-hmm. if i'm right yes so I do. I do for this story especially i think anyone who has an interest in the history of world war ii or the holocaust and wants to teach their kids about it um and likes graphic novels this is a good one where it doesn't shy away from a lot of things but it's not again like you said super gory or graphic it's it's got an honesty to it
0: it there's an honesty to it in a way that I think can be shared with younger readers because I don't I don't think it would traumatize them Mm-mm. to read it and this was something we were talking about before we started recording you know thinking back on my own you know time in school Learning about the Holocaust, it all seemed, at least for my education, very numbers-based. Very, here was were how many people who were killed. Here's what the numbers in the concentration camp was. Like, we talked about Anne Frank, but we didn't read the book. And, you know, growing up, I didn't have a ton of humanizing details. It was largely numbers, which, while... It helps to know the numbers because of the scope of it. It It's not the same as understanding that every single statistic was a person. And I think stories... It's not
1: first-hand accounts.
0: Yeah, I think stories yeah. like this, um, even though it is fictionalized, mm-hmm. um, do a lot to bring what can honestly be almost distancing numbers of death because it's hard to wrap your head around but down to something more understandable and more relatable which I think is valuable for any age. I think that's valuable for kids learning about the Holocaust for the first time. I think that's valuable for adults now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I I had a different background Mm. for you than you with the idea of the Holocaust because I did read Anne Frank's Diary several times. Another one that the author references and recommends is um, Lois Lowry's Number of the Stars, which was my favorite book when I was about 10 for several years. Um, so I read a fair amount of historical fiction around that time, so I, I think... My understanding was not so much of the numbers, but, like, the personal stories and things like that. And looking at the different resistant movements in certain countries, um, I think, is incredibly powerful, too.
0: Yeah. So, some of the details that I wanted to highlight in this. I, li- I liked, first of all, that the book didn't, and I liked that it circled back to it. That Sarah as a character is not an absolute paragon, and it does highlight that prior to the Nazi occupation, she made fun of Julian, like everyone... Not actively. She didn't bully him, but she called him by this nickname. She didn't even know his real name.
2: Uh-huh. Called him
0: by this nickname, which was the French word for crab, because uh-huh. of the way he walked. Uh-huh. And she didn't She didn't think much of when other people did bully him. Uh-huh. And that, you know, being being part of a group that gets oppressed doesn't mean that you didn't have your own things to work through in relation to other people. Mm-hmm. And I like that later on in the book, Julian calls her out on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and gets quite angry with her at one point, which, you know, is pretty impressive because he put his own life at risk and his own family at risk to to hide her. Yeah. So, um, you know... I think and she does come to that realization of her own privilege, you know, before this and how she didn't see him and how she was a bystander. And I think I think that is becoming something I've noticed in children's literature recently is the reactions of bystanders and how powerful they can be. There was another book I read, I think it was this past year, called The Truth is told by Mason Buttle. Um, And even though the the bystander character in that is secondary, his finally deciding to take action is huge in the plot of the story and what happens and the consequences and everything. Um, So I think it's important for kids to see that because I think a lot of kids by default, fall into the bystander category. Yeah. Where sometimes, yes, they're bullied, and sometimes they're the bully, but a lot of them are bystanders and witness it and say nothing. And I think, again, I think it's another theme that's very relevant to what's going on in the nation right now is, like, you know, if it's not directly affecting you, like, a lot of people don't want to sit with this discomfort and say something yeah I think it's easy to be a bystander it's comfortable it's like you don't have to put yourself out there so
0: and and there's all there's a lot of little things in this that that I that I appreciate especially in light of a lot of what's going on like her her father is very scared and sees what's coming but they don't leave ahead of the Nazis showing up because her mother had a let's just wait and see if it gets better Mm -hmm. approach. Now that's not necessary to say her mother should have been more actively doing like they were the people being targeted. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't have been safe for them to actively do anything, but rather than take preemptive measures, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: it was let's stay where we're comfortable and hope it's, stays okay Mm -hmm. which obviously it doesn't Mm -hmm. um so that was a touch that i really liked there's one element that i have conflicting feelings about Mm -hmm. uh, and that is the the neighbors
2: because
0: because i mentioned that the the family that's hiding sarah they are paranoid about their neighbors who they believe are um Nazi sympathizers and um, possible informants. And And what we find out later is that the neighbors were also, they were hiding a rabbi. Mm -hmm. And the reason they were so squirrely is because they thought the family that was hiding Sarah were Nazi collaborators and informants. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I'm very split on this. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, it does a really good job of showing how paranoia isolates people mm-hmm. and how that eats away at the integrity of a community,
2: mm-hmm. which I think
0: is a valid
1: thing. Mm. Yeah, definitely.
0: My concern with it, and this is something I thought about more, um, you know, in light of some of the you know, the stuff I've been seeking out um, recently, you know, from from minority voices from jewish voices from black voices and things like that my point of concern is that it lends itself towards something that seems to happen in a lot of fictionalized accounts of world war ii which is that boy there were a lot more good people (laughs) than we thought you know it's like oh and look they're right next door and they're both trying to help the jews when in the reality how the sliver of a minority of people who are known to be doing anything like this
2: mm-hmm.
0: are disproportionately represented in fiction. Mm-hmm. And for obvious reasons, it's a compelling story. Mm-hmm. But to have something like this where it, it creates an odd thing where, like, it's so common that even right next door they're also hiding someone. And mm-hmm. it it creates this feeling of there being more people trying to stop this than so far as history tells us was actually the case.
1: That's a valid concern. I didn't think about that. Um, and, the ending I felt in general, sorry, you can continue.
0: Well, it, it's, it, it's one of those things where there's, there's problematic issues with, um, you know stories of of gentiles saving jews that is one of the issues that can come up. That said I don't think the book overall has an issue with that cuz it's told from Sarah's perspective.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: it never loses her view on everything that happens. She's not incidental. It is her story.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas sometimes you get the story of the gentiles who are hiding somebody. And this is not that. But mm-hmm. it does still have that element which Again, I'm I'm torn on because I also see the value in that narrative yeah. decision.
1: Yeah, I I felt the ending was rushed in general, and I didn't I didn't love the romance. I'll be honest. I felt I, like I honestly would have preferred it if they had just been friends and moved. And I felt like the romance between Julian and Sarah, while well, it made sense because they were spending all this time together. I, I I would have preferred it not be there. <laughs> I I didn't mind it. I don't
0: love it, but I didn't mind it because it did feel organic,
1: uh-huh. especially
0: for, you know, young teenagers.
1: Yeah, it, okay. It
0: made a lot of sense to me for the age that they were and for how much time they were spending together. And also, it not to say that he wouldn't have done it anyway, but it lends more credence to Julian's decision by the end to stand his ground and to get killed mm-hmm. rather than give her give her, the, give give her, her up. up which I, yeah. which might have saved her life if he'd done that and you know knowing that she was more than a friend to him helps the the believability of that
1: yeah. Okay, that makes sense. It just it, what with what happened with Julian and finding out that the neighbors were helping out the rabbi and like Vincent chasing her and his. It felt like the ending like a lot got packed in, and I was like, it was a little rushed for me. I I'll that go- was that's my main criticism of the book. Other than again, I'm I'm with you on the art style. Um. That, I think, other than that, I think it was a very powerful story, and I think the messages behind it are very powerful, but I would have liked a more paced ending, I think.
0: I, I'm i not going to say it's not rushed, because it kind of is, but I didn't think too much on it, because I recognized that Julian dying was the emotional climax yeah. of the thing, and if you linger too long after your emotional climax, eventually it becomes like, why is this still going? So that I'm not sure she got the balance right, but Mm -hmm. I also get why things would have felt a little, little, going a little fast in the wake of that. Uh, The one other thing I'll say about the framing device, while I, while I think there is a certain amount of very calculated marketing plans behind tying it to wonder in a very indirect and very loose way Mm -hmm. setting that aside i do actually like the framing device for what it does for the story in terms of conveying the importance of these stories being passed on to the younger generation so that Mm -hmm. it's not forgotten and to contextualize it with things going on more recently so i i more often than not i don't like framing devices but here I do think it actually does contribute to what is being said with the work and some of the messages of it. So I actually think the framing device, strictly in terms of the narrative and taking the marketing end out of it, is <laughs> is well used.
1: I think, um, I do too. I think too that like knowing the background of the author, and so her husband, I don't know if you read the... The back of it, did you? The author's it's no everything. It's big blocks
0: of text. Things. Do you think I read
1: it? <laughs> well, Take a anyways, wild guess. Anyways, um, sorry, baby. It's okay. Is <laughs> um her husband was Jewish, and a lot of this, like, this book was dedicated to her husband's um mother, um, and. Her her mother-in-law lost an incredible amount of relatives in the Holocaust, um, so she spoke about that. Um, I didn't know this about R.J. Palacio, but this kind of ties into the connection that they make in terms of the framing device. Um, she is actually um, a first-generation American, um, the daughter of Colombian parents, so I mm. thought that was kind of neat to know about her. Um, but that she concentrated on her husband, her mother-in-law and like her heritage and her family's story. And I thought that was kind of really powerful and moving.
0: The one thing that I will say about the segment in the back, even though, no, I didn't read it. I did look at it and see that it was there. (laughs) And I do, I do appreciate that it includes basically a, um, you know, a glossary because it. Within the narrative, it doesn't stop to define certain things. Certain things, But knowing that it is a book that is digestible for younger readers who might not know all the context, there are...
1: There's a lot of terminology, and mm. I really appreciated that as well. I mean, even specific to the Holocaust, but specific to the, the, the beast or the wolf in there, it's, it talks about polio, it does a lot of different things, it talks about the region of France... That this was based on and their connection through the resistance movement. Um, there's resources.
0: Yep, yeah, there's. I mean, there's the glossary, which I think was just a really good idea to include. But even there's a suggested reading list. There's organizations and resources. She she put a lot of work and she and she shows her work mm-hmm. in in the back end of this thing.
1: Yeah, I will say a lot of people who do historical fiction. I've been impressed by authors recently, especially anything tied to World War II and the Holocaust. They tend to, at least from what I've seen, do their homework and really delve in deep to it. Um, So I appreciated that as a librarian.
0: So I I think I hit everything that I was planning to say. Did you have anything else?
1: Um, no, not really
0: Okay, so uh, we're going to do a quick commercial break And we'll be back in a minute with listener feedback From David Gallagher and Steve Ellis The award-winning team that brought you The Only Living Boy Comes this thrilling new action-adventure series The Only Living Girl
2: Hi, my name is Andra People call me Z I was a normal girl I loved science, my bear, and my dad. One day, tragedy struck. But that wasn't the end of my story. I awoke in a Patrick world filled with mermaid warriors, insect princesses, robots, a world created by my dad. I'd become a mad scientist. Now I'm stuck in a world that doesn't trust me. In a conflict with my father's creations. Luckily, I still have my friend Eric and my bear. I am the only living girl.
0: The Only Living Girl, Volume 1 The Island at the Edge of Infinity is available now in both hardcover and paperback from PaperCuts. So we are back, and now we're gonna take a look at the feedback from the previous episode, which was episode 42, where we looked at Far West.
1: Which seems so different tonally right now from what we just read. Just
0: a little tiny it, bit. It
1: seems a very long time ago that we yeah. explored Far West. Yeah.
0: So when when we read this, um the you know, seven years that was a month ago. <laughs> Um, Ryan Daly said, Every time you mention Richard Moore, I thought, Oh, yeah, I've read some of that guy's stuff. But then I look at the art in his bibliography and realize, Nope, not familiar with this guy. I love the premise, though. I think this might be a world that I enjoy more as an animated or live-action adaptation than the original material. Um, it's kind of funny that he says that, because long freaking time ago, one of my early YouTube videos was, um three comic books that i think would make great movies but probably will never be turned into one and i this was one of them not necessarily because i think the story is amazing but i saw a lot of potential in the setting especially if it was animated mm. so i found it i found it amusing that he his brain went to the same place
1: <laughs> you and ryan all right next one liz and oswalt's impressive podcast most impressive Seems like this was a cool comic. Wait, a doll attacked her? Weird. Yeah, that was weird when the doll attacked her. <laughs> there was a lot of weirdness going on in Far West. Um, I'm guessing by their outfits, they're part of the same tribe. I really don't know what was going on with the outfits or the cultural appropriation in, this, in Far West. Yeah, it was there, strange.
0: There didn't seem to be a clear thought line on whether the elves were meant to be stand-ins for indigenous peoples or if they if just an aesthetic was being borrowed for meg specifically i don't know i don't either
1: um though geez her outfit would worry me with that much sand yeah a lot of things could get in there (laughs) but a bear in the old west oh the heat yeah i think he would be pretty hot in that fur coat i don't see any non-elf People looking at the art, well, bears and the orc-looking dude there and the dragon. Um, so Liz thinks she might be a Native American version of the elves.
0: I suppose if the elves are meant to be the majority of the equivalent of the human populace, then there might just be, even within the elvish race, there might be maybe different classifications.
1: It's hard to know, like... If there's a metaphor going on or if there's... It was a little too out there and outlandish. So if they were trying to make a point, I don't know what that point was. I
0: don't think he was. I think he just took the aesthetic.
1: Yeah. Uh, As someone who's part Cherokee on my birth father's side and Choctaw on my mother's side, um, it was generations ago. Still, I'm way more German, Irish, Scottish, etc., Too much to list. Um, She's lucky that she has a nice butt. (laughs) I suffer from the Brie Larson problem of having almost no butt. (laughs) I guess that was something that was criticized about her, which is just silly. Uh, Dragon junk, huh? Yeah, there is a lot of dragon junk. I'm still a little bit like (laughs) scarred by all the dragon genitalia. Um, That had to be shocking at first. Probably like seeing horse junk after working on a farm or something. First time, it's like, geez, hide that. After a bit, it's like, oh yeah, that's there. Moving right along, still weird. Must be easier for the dragon in that heat than the bear, yeah. Unlike the bear man with the freaking fur. It's weird that they wore the one feather and hat combo. If she's in charge, you'd think she'd get at least two feathers. I can see why they wore hats, since in Westerns people look at you sideways if you don't. I don't know Westerns enough to confirm this. It's not my, like, genre, especially when it's melded with other things, so.
0: My relations with Westerns is pretty peripheral. It's one of those things um, where I, I can sometimes find the settings like that, you know, the... The dusty town and the saloon and the, and the bounties and the marsh Like, I can have fun in that, but like most, a bit like my relationship with a lot of horror iconography, I enjoy the visual aesthetic more than I like the stories that are told within it, more often than not.
1: Yeah, and it's pretty problematic nowadays.
0: Well, yes, especially. And, and, and not
1: representative and, of actually what was going on at all, so. Anything
0: that's glorifying of the frontier, yeah, it, there's issues. Yeah.
1: Um, not that I'm a big Western fan, says Liz. I watch Eastwood Stuff, Some John Wayne, Quick and the Dead, Magnificent Seven, and the reboot, Magnificent Seven, with Dancil and Star-Lord. Um, though I'm not much of a Western fan. Though I do find it funny when te- people talk about Magnificent Seven and it being seven sa- samurais with cowboys. Since... A- Kira Kurosawa was inspired big time by John Ford. I did not know that.
0: It, it was a bit of a circular, influential thing. The Kurosawa's samurai films were informed by westerns, and then a lot of, a lot of westerns cribbed from Kurosawa's samurai films. It became a, a, a wonderful little
1: circular, a, yeah,
0: a little little self-perpetuating loop there for um, for a decade or so.
1: Um, So yeah, Akira Kurosawa films are cowboy films with samurais. I do need to look into Kurosawa more. Um, Remove six guns, replace it with a katana. Even though the katana was the third weapon, a samurai went to bow first, Yuri Spear second, then katana. Anyways, that's probably why Solo acts so much like a cowboy. Um, Though I would like to see what would happen if Toshira Mifune had took... George up on Star Wars and played Ben Kenobi. May have been fun. Back to the comic. What are the patterns on her body? I don't think the spots are a tattoo, and most of the humanoid elves have them. I wonder. Must have to do with what type of elf and why they have uh, the top parts to their ears. Anyway, will you all cover Mantra at some point? I don't know Mantra.
0: I don't know either.
1: Um, I would mention the crowdfunded book uh phil jimenez made but i can't remember what was its title but some of the leaders were female anyways can't he- wait to hear the, the next podcast uh charo liz and nathaniel well,
0: thank you liz Ann. um so we had a couple more comments we had one from tim price i really appreciate the atypical character design but this is too cheesecakey for me nowadays <laughs> fair like look i i own this book because i bought it i Bought it in my early 20s, and I probably wouldn't buy it now for the first time, but I do still kind of like it. Um, anyways, Dim goes on, I really would dig the walking, talking bear. That's just awesome. Yes, Phil is awesome.
1: Phil was probably my favorite part.
0: As always, fun discussion, my punchers. Glad you're, so, you're socially undistanced.
1: Yes, we are so thankful for that. It's nice to snuggle. Even in the heat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, which, oh boy, that's its own thing right now. Um, And finally, Brian Linton said, I hadn't heard of this book before, but loved the fantasy western genre mashup. Growing up, I loved reading Tolkien and watching TV shows like Gunsmoke and Bonanza, but I never imagined the two of them going together. Interestingly, Wikipedia lists the genre for Far West as Weird West. I like that name. (laughs)
1: I feel that's accurate.
0: Yeah, I, and that is kind of a sub-genre where it's not always necessarily like that kind of fantasy, but sometimes it's like steampunk West and or even like cyberpunk West. of when, when they mash it up with a sci-fi or a fantasy genre, that falls under Weird West. Um, Brian continues. Also, while I appreciate your warning about Meg's chaps, I you failed to mention that Phil doesn't appear to wear pants of any sort whatsoever. Yes, but Phil also had the fur, so we didn't have the anatomical correctness thing with him like we did with, say, the dragon. Um, anyway, Thank goodness. <laughs> says, Don't
1: need bear junk on top of dragon junk. <laughs>
0: Anyways, he says, I'm sorry, but that's just not the sort of thing I want to see in my comics. I mean, if I want to see a pantsless bear, I'll pour honey over my head and go for a walk in the woods. Seriously, though, thank you both for sharing this book with us. I mean, if you want to see a pantsless bear, you can also go to the Fulton Street Fair when that comes back around. But... What? Somebody had to make the joke. Give me don't a know break. I you're talking about, but okay. It's 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 a... It's a very naked um gay kink pride thing in san francisco
1: oh okay gotcha Yep, okay fulton street okay good to know
0: so yes pantsless bears
1: chapless assless chaps i don't know if i can say that word but
2: (laughs) it's
0: in the back end most people won't hear it i'm not going to take the time to bleep it so it's fine so thanks everybody for listening we Do you know what we're doing next time?
1: It is on order. I think it's at the bookstore. We are doing Shuri, The Search for Black Panther, because Shuri is my favorite Disney princess, and we've been meaning to do her for a while. And it also kind of ties to my reference to Black Girl's Code in the beginning, because, Mm -hmm. yeah, she's an amazing coder, even if she's a fictional one.
0: (laughs) It's valid. Representation matters. So... (laughs) I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you in a month. Bye. Bye. Tough Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production and is presented on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Comments can be left on fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can support the network by finding us on Patreon. This particular show was supported by Carolyn and Brian Linton. Our logo art was created by Nick Buxom, and our theme music is by Erica Dreisbach, whose other works can be found at ericaricardo.com.